again. Happy Thanksgiving. So glad that you're all here. Um, that's my favorite logo, the one with the little holly thing on it. Too bad it's not good all year round. But maybe we'll do like a little like red maple leaf or something for fall and something for spring. We'll see. Anyway. Anyway, um, I uh, trust that um, your Thanksgiving festivities, um, you know, while you were enjoying them, that you were aware that God was celebrating with you. I am really glad that you're here, and I'm glad for those of you who are online, if this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I will be your guide for the next 30 minutes or so, your scriptural Sherpa, as it were, and uh, I am so glad. Yeah, that's cool, right? I know. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm glad that, um, that we're all here together. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and we are marking time with the Advent wreath off to my right here, and um, this is really about helping us um, think ahead for when he arrives. That's what it's about. Um, Advent means arrival in many respects. And then we started last week by talking about prophecy, <coughs> and, uh, specifically the prophecies about the birth of a Messiah. And in that process, one of the things that we learned is that God is not confusing, but he is mysterious. And that mystery, that, that uh, series of question marks that we often have, is really an invitation. It's God inviting us to go a little bit deeper to say, mm, are you going to trust me? Do you really want to know more about this? Or do you just want to fret? Because sometimes I think we just want to fret, right? And that mysterious nature of God is always that invitation inviting us into something a little bit deeper. And uh, often for Advent, what we, what we do is we stitch together the various birth narratives of Jesus, and we find the big ones in Matthew and in Luke. And so we try to put them together to try to get this big picture of what's actually um, uh, happening in the storyline. But this year, we are focusing on one narrative. We are going to be dealing primarily with Matthew. So I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, um, keep that in mind. But Matthew's is very rich in culture and in history, so it's going to be fun. There's a lot of interesting things here that we can deal with. Now, if, you, um, if you're familiar with the, the Matthew's account of all of this, um, then you know that when you open that first page, you are confronted with a genealogy, right? This genealogy of Jesus. I want to talk about this because this is actually quite interesting, and we need a little bit of context here. So let me, let me, let me offer a little bit, see if this makes sense. This genealogy is very important. So Matthew is writing this gospel, this biography of Jesus, to a very specific audience. He's writing to skeptical Jews. Now, not just Jews, skeptical Jews. So you've got to keep that in mind. So there are various um, devices that he is going to employ in order to get their attention. A genealogy is one of them. Um, he's going to appeal to the things that they know and that they understand. Now, what's, what's fascinating is that all ancient cultures, ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, looked to bloodlines. They liked to track um, who the parentage was of every individual, and it actually told um, or it revealed some things about that individual. It might reveal their power, their status. It might reveal their character. Um, it might definitely reveal their reputation or the reputation of the family. Um, and frankly, if you were uh, specifically of Jewish descent, it might also reveal to you certain generational 
blessings and cursings. Keep that in mind. Uh, so a lot of things were tied up into the bloodline. Now today we like to, we like to think in terms of um, uh, everybody makes their own choices, and that's true as far as it goes, but in ancient times, a family's reputation affected everybody in that, in that family. So it's very important who your parentage was. And we find some significant genealogies early on in Genesis. I want to talk about these a little bit because they really are quite fascinating. The first one we find is in Genesis chapter 5. I've got it on the screen so you don't have to look this one up. Um, <clears throat> but here's where it, it starts. I, I've um, selected a couple of verses in order for it to make some sense here. This is the written account of Adam's family line. Remember Adam, right? Genesis chapter 2, okay, this is his family line. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth, okay? And so it, it goes on until verse 32, we come down to Noah. Remember him? After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and, and uh, uh, Japheth, <clears throat> takes you a second. Sometimes you look at that and go, is there another consonant in there or not? <laughs> yes, you have to look at, at, at those things. Now, let me, let me just point a couple things out here. First of all, you notice that they've lived a long time, right? 130 years, 500 years. Old Methuselah lived 969 years. Oldest man in the Bible kind of a thing, right? So we have this genealogy early on in Genesis. And what's interesting to note here is that in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, you have this age um, of, it's often called the age of heroes, but you have these human beings that live these long periods of time and they all happen before the flood because the flood in Genesis is not the only place where that's recorded. It's actually recorded in some other ancient Near Eastern uh, literature, most notably the Epic of Gilgamesh. If you've never read that, it's an interesting read. But there are quite a bit of, of parallels between the two books. And why not? Moses, who put the book of Genesis together, was educated in Egypt, which was the center of learning. He would have had access to all of these stories. And so consequently, as he was putting this together under the inspiration of God, there are certain things that, um, that show up across these different histories that makes sense. But this age of heroes, we often find that the um, uh, individuals involved lived a long time, a lot longer. But as the story goes on, you will see that number come down um, over the generations. So after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, Japheth, Mel, Larry, Curly. No, just kidding. Name the seven dwarves. No, don't do that. <laughs> But here's the reason why I've underlined Shem in this picture, <clears throat> because this is the account of Shem's family line. This is Genesis chapter 11. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of, uh-huh, right? Arphaxad, Arphaxad, Arphaxad. Kind of like you're faxing something to your, no, anyway. Uh, and then uh, towards the end of that, after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, who was later called Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So I 
picked the, the, the first verse of this genealogy and the last verse so that you can see this. So Shem, now here's something interesting. Um, I, I didn't know this, and I, I learned this several years ago. Shem <coughs> um, has come, uh, we, we actually still use that word a lot. They drop the H, Semites. You heard of anti-Semite? It means people of descendants of Shem. Okay, so in the kind of um, Americanized English version, we drop the H. So, you know, Semite, anti-Semite, we often refer to as Jews, means the family of Shem. Does that make sense? So, if you ever wondered, that's where it comes from. <coughs> so this is the family. So you have this account of Noah, or sorry, from uh, Adam to Noah, and then Noah's son Shem to Abraham. Okay, we have these two genealogies um, that are in play here in Genesis. It's important to remember that. So when Matthew starts his genealogy, guess where he starts? Abraham. And we'll see that here in just a minute. It's very clever, and it's a tactical move of trying to tie Jesus to this broader Old Testament narrative. Matthew is really good. See, here's the thing, and I've, I've contended this for a long time. A lot of you have heard me say this, and I believe it with all my heart. I think the big mistake that we often make when we're reading the Old and New Testament is that we think that these are primitive writers. Uh-uh. They're very sophisticated, and they have an agenda, and they will use every means necessary in order to communicate whatever that message is that they're trying to get across. And they'll use these clever little devices like this. It's fascinating to actually see them in practice. So let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 1, and you can see what I'm talking about here. So he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham, right? So he's deliberately trying to put things in order here. Because if you're a first century Jew, you would have known the Genesis story. There's a good chance that when you went to Hebrew school or when you went to Jewish school, you had to memorize the entire genealogy. Wouldn't that be fun? And you thought your times tables were hard, right? Not only do you have to memorize, you've got to remember how to pronounce those names. My goodness, yeah. So here we are, we have um, this o- opening line. So here, uh, oops, let me go back. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So far, so good. Remember, we have to establish this lineage, and all Jews point to Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had, come on, you know the song. Anyway, (laughs) moving on. Uh, But the idea here is that he's trying to tie these things together. This is very deliberate. This is very strategic on his point, on his part. And so what happens is that all of, all of the sons of Shem, all of the Semites, God chooses this family, Abraham and his son and his son's son and then the sons of Jacob, who, by the way, Jacob was the one who was later renamed Israel. And that's where we get that name from. And so the Jewish audience reading this would see where this is going. They would understand this. This is moving along in a particular way. So Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. But then, Matthew throws a little twist into the storyline. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, yeah, okay, that's okay, and Zerah. 
whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Now, wait a second. There's a female listed here. Trust me, throughout that entire genealogy in Genesis, you're not going to find a female. And so Matthew throws this one in here. And if you're a first century Jew and you know the genealogies, this would grab your attention. Furthermore, you would also know that the story of Judah and Tamar is found in Genesis chapter 38. And it's not a pretty story. It's an ugly story. It is a terrible narrative about Judah and his sons and how they treated a woman named Tamar. It's awful. If you get a chance, read it, but try to do it when you have something to look forward to afterwards. Let's put it that way. And if you're a first century Jew, one of the first questions you would ask is, Matthew, why? Why would you do that? Why would you, why, why couldn't you just mention Judah and move on? Oh no, no, no. Matthew throws this name in there and it would bring to mind that story. It's deliberate and it would be shocking for a first century Jew to read this. In fact, I would, I would have to say that if you were a first century Jew and you were religious, you would not only be shocked, you would be appalled and rather embarrassed. This is a part of the family history nobody wants to talk about. It's a sordid tale. And like I said, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 38. The short of it, Judah was, was no saint, neither was his family, and it's ugly and everybody would wonder why you would draw attention to it. Funny how humans don't want to acknowledge the difficult stuff back then and today. And isn't it funny that they don't want to acknowledge the difficult stuff even though it might be able to set us free? But it's not over. Matthew's not done, not quite yet. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Wait a second. Another mother? Okay. Wait, where have I heard the name Rahab before? You know who Rahab was? Yeah, some people do. It's found in Joshua chapter 1 and chapter 6. She was the woman who hid Israel's spies when they were checking out Jericho. Rahab had a profession. She was a prostitute. Gets absorbed into the people of Israel because she had done such a kindness for those spies. She ends up marrying a man named Salmon. But don't miss the fact that she had a past, and it wasn't a good one. And again, if you're a first century Jew, you would ask, why? why? Why would you put that in there? Rahab. Now Boaz, he was a pretty good guy. But Boaz also has a bit of a story too because Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth. 
She's got a book with her name. Neat story. But was she Jewish? Nope. She was um, a Mobitess from the tribe of Moab. She was a foreigner. She wasn't, she wasn't a Jew. Now there's some, there's some you know, family relations there, but you know, if you're a Harry Potter fan, she was a mudblood. Okay? She, wasn't, she wasn't pure at all. She was a foreigner. Now she was an excellent woman, excellent reputation, but she was a foreigner. A Semite, but not a Jew. And of course, it ends with King David. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, so we got through that first section. And we mentioned three, three females, and each time, those stories are very interesting. If you're a first century Jew, you're wondering about this. It was almost like Matthew was throwing a spotlight on all of this. Like he was saying, yeah, David, you know that king that you revere, that one that you really like? Yeah, his bloodline isn't as pure as you'd like it to be. And yet he was a great king, wasn't he? I mean, by all you know, accounts, terrible father, but a great leader. And yet his bloodline, there's some question marks in there. Would you agree? And then Matthew does this. I love this. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Doesn't even mention her name, but mentions the man that David had killed in order to be with her. Ouch. This is a direct jab at all of this. Who had been Uriah's wife? Of course, this is the story of Bathsheba. Matthew throws David's adultery and abuse of power out in the open and it's at the center of this genealogy and it's at the center of the prophecies. Because remember, all the prophecies pointed to someone in the line of King David. And everyone's like, oh yeah, King David. (laughs) Let's remember that he's got a past too. He's got things. And I can hear those early Jews. Why, Maddie? Why would you do that? Why would you put these stories in there? Can't we just mention the fathers and move along? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with you? Why would you highlight these sorts of things? But did it get their attention? Oh, you betcha. Yeah, it did. In each case, Matthew mentions a woman for a reason. Tamar. Rahab. Ruth, Uriah's wife. But the thing that you have to remember, because the easy thing to do is, is to, to look at that and go, well, he's picking women, he's picking the bad ones. There were some good ones in there. Hold on, hold on, hold on. He's not pointing out these women and their stories in order to throw the women under the bus. That's not the point here at all. He's not trying to discredit them. But I think, I think, as I read through the story, I think he, he highlights them in order to point out a couple of things. Let me offer a couple thoughts. 
as we'll see, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth includes some incredible, even incredulous, details. Like, for instance, Jesus' mother was a virgin. A virgin birth? Are you kidding me? Come on. That's not real. Wait a second. How does that happen? And yet, you'll see it in the story. The Messiah couldn't possibly have anything questionable about his parentage. And Matthew says, really? You sure about that? He's setting them up in a literary way. He's setting his readers up. He's, he's saying, look, you're going to call into question the credibility of this young woman named Mary. But guess what? She ain't the only one. You see that? This ancient Christian author is anticipating Jewish objection. If they accept the uncomfortable lineage of their forefathers, including King David, Joseph and Mary's story isn't so difficult to handle. Right? You know, yeah, those great kings, David and Solomon, <laughs> hold up. And now you're going to call into question this, this story? Mm. It really is what I call an in-your-face reality check, isn't it? He's really pulling out the stops, especially for a Jewish, Jewish leader. But at the same time, I think, too, his choice of genealogy shows us, you and me, something. And I think it's this. I think it highlights that we need a Savior. The greatest bloodline in Jewish history has its question marks. And they needed saving. I mean, if you really look at the way the ancient Jews venerated things within, stories within the Old Testament, Matthew highlights the questionable parts, the nasty parts, the things that we all want to kind of gloss over for a reason. And that's ultimately to say, you know what, as a people, Jewish people, we need a Savior. We needed the Messiah. We needed somebody to come out of this story that would help make sense of, of it all. And similarly, I think each of us has dark places. Now, we either have them in our family histories, whether you're the black sheep in your family uh, or you know the black sheep in your family, which, by the way, if you don't know the black sheep in your family, guess who it is? Or maybe there's some stuff in our personal lives, stuff that we're not proud of and choices we'd you know, like to have back or <laughs> just as soon forget, right? And we're no different. We're, we're no different. We still need that Savior. And here Jesus comes alongside of us through this story and he says very simply to all of us, yeah, I got that too. I got some stuff in my family bloodline that needs some redeeming. 
but I'm here to make it better. No, I'm not here to make it better. I'm here to make it new. God, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that during this holiday season, you might let him review your life, maybe your family's life, renew, redeem, restore, whatever word you need to make it new. Because really what's happening here is that this arrival that we're all waiting for is God saying to us, I get you. And by the way, I got you. Both are true. Not only does he get you, he loves you anyway. And not only does he love you, he likes you. Because those are different things. And we read through this genealogy, and yeah, it's cool and it's great that it draws our attention back to the story, but let's, let's deal with the humanity of it. That we're not so different than those ancient people. But the remedy is the same. It's a Messiah that we all desperately need. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so good to us. I'm so thankful for a servant like Matthew who is able to look into the the ancient text and draw out the humanity of it all, of your advent, that there are reasons why you decided to become human. In the form of a baby, not just not just because you know we would begin to understand you more, but also with the lineage that isn't as pristine as we'd like it to be, and it's kind of like ours too. We're just around the Thanksgiving table, and of course, you know, memories flood back, and people are telling stories, and we tell the happy ones, but we always know in the background that there are things in our family that, oh boy kind of shake our heads yeah you understand that too and it isn't about these these women but rather the stories that they represent reminding us that every person got a little bit of brokenness a little bit of scarring on our hearts some of them are still wounded some hope, which is what the arrival is all about. So as we kind of go through this this whole Advent season, Lord, I pray that we would not be so fixated on the, the past, but rather we would enjoy your presence in the present. Because that's all we have at the moment. Tomorrow's gone and tomorrow's not assured, but right now is what we have and you're here us. feel you today. Thanks for being here, God. We need that. And so as, as we, you know, worship again, Lord, I just invite you to come and speak to our hearts. Speak to us in ways that we need to hear. I trust you know what to say because you know us so well. Holy Spirit, Pray that you're 
just present with your